Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Today we're talking about a particularly delicate subject. Welcome, Lyric. Welcome. Um, and as I mentioned in the opening part of class, the reason this subject is delicate is because of all the peculiar notions South Asian philosophy has developed around this concept. And this is the concept um, that is commonly referred to as tapasya, tapasya or austerity, meaning um, self-abnegation, spiritual struggle. And it's complicated to talk about for the same reason that sexual continence or brahmacharya is complicated to talk about here in the West. And maybe we won't say West, but modernity or late stage capitalism. Even that is a bit glib. Uh, but just the culture of the world today as a consequence of globalization, as a consequence of advertising, has particular notions about sex and the way that sex ties into selfhood. The way that it relates to intimacy in relationships, um, the way that it relates to self-esteem and all of that. So when you suddenly meet a yogi who says that an impediment to your spiritual progress is lust and greed, there's a tendency of like, oh, no, um, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm not really quite ready to give up those things. And that's all well and good. So that's why we talked a lot about renunciation, not as any kind of outward show of letting things go, but a deep inward understanding that certain things will not fulfill us the way we expect them to. Now, that being said, one of the things that the East or South Asian philosophical cultures struggle with is tapasya. There is almost an obsession with self-abnegation. And so we're going to talk about what that really means, tapasya. What role does austerity play in our spiritual lives? You know, so that's where we're going today. Um, and I'm going to suggest to you at the end of our talk that it is indispensable. <laughs> Much like brahmacharya and the letting go of lust and greed is indispensable with spiritual practice, uh, for spiritual practice. So too is an austere, austere approach to spirituality indispensable. But we must be very careful to clarify what that austerity is. And so we'll be visiting stories from uh, Islamic mysticism or Sufi stories. We'll be visiting Christian mysticism, studying the life of the Christ. And we'll be looking at how various sages in the South Asian cultures, like the Buddha um, and others, conceptualized austerity and advocated for its use. Before we do that, do that though, um, two disclaimers. The first disclaimer is that there is no amount of work necessary for spiritual awakening. That's important to clarify. So there's no experience bar that you have to fill before you become awakened. And that's because uh, South Asian traditions always emphasize that the journey of spirituality is not a journey of growth or healing. It's not the attempt to become better than you are now. It's not the attempt to add anything onto yourself, nor is it really the attempt to subtract something from yourself. 
You know, so I used to give this example of Lord of the Rings, where it's a little bit of an anti-quest, where in many quests um, from the medieval era, you know, the way the quests are depicted is always the heroes leave the kingdom in search of something. They're in search of the Holy Grail. They're in search of the fair maiden to rescue from the tower. They're in search of a dragon. You know, they're always going out looking for something. Lord of the Rings is interesting because it's a bit of an inversion of that. You know, so in the Lord of the Rings setup, they're setting out to get rid of something. They're trying to throw the ring into the fire. As Sam dramatically says, throw it into the fire, Mr. Frodo, you know. So Lord of the Rings, um, that model is very nice relatively speaking, because the spiritual quest is like that. You have something that is preventing you from seeing what you always were, always will be, and are now. That thing that's like kind of performing a veil function or a smokescreen function between your experience and reality um, is what we call in this tradition mala. Mala meaning an impurity. And there are generally three kinds of malas. The first is the annava mala, or the impurity of individuality. You know, the idea that you are a separate self, that you are the wave and not the ocean, that you are the ornament and not the gold that makes up all ornaments. So this mala, or this impurity, is the intellectual, or I should say, intuitive mistake of taking yourself to be the most superficial layers of your existence, namely your physical emotional, mental, and even energetic, even causal dimensions. You are in fact much deeper than that. So anytime you forget the essence of your being in favor of a more superficial, more contracted form or construct, there is an, a, a veiling effect. You know, that, that's an experience of, oh, this person told me that I'm already awakened, but I don't feel that. You know, I'm not immediately aware of that reality now. And that's the mala that's keeping you from it. The second one is the maya mala or the impression of separate self. So the first impurity was the idea that you are a self, that you are this contracted mind-body form. Um, the Buddha was famous for dispelling this illusion. You know, the Buddha's entire philosophy was centered around proving that what you took to be real was in fact not real. The mind and body only seem to be real, but they're optical illusions, so to speak. So the second impurity, the impurity or uh, lack of alignment maybe is a better translation for mala. The second one is maya mala, which is the idea that you, are as an you as an individual are separate from other individuals. You know, so you can see how the first one gives rise to the second. As long as you take yourself to be this body and this mind, um, you will always see yourself as separate from other bodies and other minds. And so all your energy and time is spent in navigating that world. How do I interact with others? How do I extract from them what I want in order to satisfy these individual self-needs? Now, these two malas give rise to the third one, which is the karma mala. Karma mala is the idea of selfish action. Um, this is the striving or the craving that the Buddha argued was ultimately um, suffering-inducing. It was ultimately the, the dukkha experience of life, that dissatisfied, unfulfilled, there must be more to this kind of feeling. And these three malas or these three impurities are what 
all South Asian philosophies seek to remove. So it's almost like you're wearing orange sunglasses, to, to borrow Rupert Spira's uh, uh, analogy. You're wearing orange sunglasses and you're looking at the snow. All the snow is going to be appearing orange. It's not that the snow isn't white as, as it is now. It's white. It's just that it's appearing orange. And this distresses you. So the work of yoga, the work of South Asian philosophy is to remove, so to speak, this jaundiced gaze, to remove the lens through which the snow appears distorted. And the promise is, if you are able to remove this goggle, this glass, this uh, lens, you will see the snow as it is, and that will free you from all suffering. It will free you from all fear. And this is quite a startling claim. Because wherever you are in life, fear um, seems to be a constant. You know, whatever part of the social strata you find yourself, there is always some level of anxiety. You know, whether you're afraid to lose your extraordinary wealth, you're afraid to lose your kingdom, or you're afraid you won't find a place to sleep or something to eat tonight, the base experience there seems to be some element of fear. And the yogic schools say that if you look closely behind this fear in all of its forms, whether that's a fear of not getting the grade you want on this particular assignment, whether it's the fear of uh, a disease, whatever kind of fear you're experiencing, at its root is the fear of death. So at its root is a deeply held notion that I am about to end. This body and this mind have an expiration date and that deeply unsettles me. So we do our best to ignore that fact. You know, we saturate the senses with stimulation. We watch as much Netflix as we can. You know, because the last thing we want to be thinking about is that youth flies very quickly away from us. You know, the last thing that we want to be thinking about is that someday we are going to be on the deathbed, perhaps after a stroke, or a lot of you are doing Viparita Karani 10 minutes a day, so the stroke risk is very low. But, uh, you know, at some point, there is a moment where the mind and body will give out. And that is the underlying fear. And that fear is the root of all the other fears. In yoga, it's called Abhinivesha, the fear of death. On one hand, it's an argument for reincarnation. You know, you only fear things you've experienced before. So you've experienced the end of the body and the mind before. And you found it so disturbing that you're afraid to experience it again. So here you are, you've got about 80 or so years, 90, some of you practicing yogis, maybe a couple hundred, you know, and, but whatever amount of time you're talking about, it's still a limited amount of time. So you go from this cradle to grave and in between these two bookends, you've got to figure out how to deal with that grave moment, you know? And until you do, you're going to be experiencing fear in all sorts of different forms. So the yogic solution is to say, instead of dealing with fear superficially, so instead of trying to address the fact that you're worried about the grade or you're worried about how you're going to meet your rent payment tonight, instead of addressing the symptoms of fear, let's go to the root of fear, which is the fear of death. And the root of the fear of death is the idea that you are a separate self, that you are, in fact, this mind and body. And so all yogic practice, to an extent, tries to rid you of this deeply held conviction that you are the mind and the body. 
Now, mere philosophizing doesn't quite do it. So no amount of me telling you you aren't the mind or body will take from you this feeling that you are, you know? So you could say, yes, I know, Drigdrushya Viveka, the seer is different from the seen. The mind and the body are not me. I'm all minds, all bodies. Yet, when the D comes in for the assignment that you just turned in, there's still that feeling of, ah, my life is over. <laughs> what will I say to my parents? Um, yes. So Nithya asks, can you break down our fear of death through an example? Um, yes, maybe take this for instance. You, you're supposed to, like, perhaps you're supposed to give a speech on something. Um, and you misquote or you get a concept wrong. And there's a pundit in the audience, meaning a person who's very learned in yoga philosophy, and the pundit points out your mistake. You realize with horror that the pundit is right. You did blunder. You did kind of um, flounder there. Suddenly there might arise this panic, this feeling of fear. Oh no, you know, this very uncomfortable feeling. I've been outed. I've been proven to be I don't know. There's a whole bunch of storytelling that comes with such an experience, you know. Oh, maybe I don't know anything at all. What right do I have to teach this philosophy? I've been proven wrong. All that stuff. But if you go a little deeper, you will see underneath all of that storytelling is one fundamental story, which is this is going to cause my annihilation. You know, this is my the assassination of my character, the end of my career, what have you. Um, but underneath that is this feeling of annihilation, this feeling of an end. That's it for my yoga career. That's it for my career as a musician. That's it for my, you know, fill in the blanks. Does that help, Nithya? The claim that I'm making here is that every fear you experience, and no matter where you are or who you are, life is a series of fears. You know, interspersed with moments of forgetting, moments of distraction, but you inevitably still go back to this maybe background fear or underlying fear that it will all end. <laughs> and so that manifests. Like yes? Oh, I'm so sorry. Please. So it's like an attack on our created ego, basically. Precisely. Precisely. Okay. Now, we'll unpack that word ego a little more because the term that we give in this tradition is asmita or ahamkara. I like that phrase ahamkara because aham means the I. Aham means I. Kara means to make. So ahamkara means the I maker. It's that faculty in you that is self-referential that says, oh, here comes a smell. I'm the one that's smelling it. Um, someone's saying something. They're saying it to me. So it's that feeling of you sitting there listening now and that feeling of me talking. You know, that's how uh, this ahamkara creates an idea of self-referentiality. Now, asmita means ego or separate self. The ego, we've discussed it plentiful times, is a construct. And that's, uh, you know, quite prevalent in our spiritual community. Like the ego is a construct. It's a false self. It's an illusory thing. Sure, sure. But essentially what it is, it's a collection of thoughts or a collection of stories. Some of them you've inherited from your parents, guardians, some of them from society. And you've done this curat curatorial work where you've decided to cling on to certain stories at the expense of others. So a lot of life is the negotiating of your construct with other people's constructs with reality. 
<laughs> so the more identified you are with this construct, the more drama you will have with other people. Because now when they say that you're wrong, that's an existential threat. You know, because to you, you are someone who knows something about something and someone's come along to show that maybe that's not true. That can be perceived as an existential threat, threat you know. So one test for this is if you find yourself getting worked up because someone says you're wrong, or if you find yourself getting worked up because someone is blaming or chastising you, then there is some identification with the story. And to an extent, all of us, you know, have varying degrees of identification to this story. That's why the death of the body is scary, you know, because ultimately we have a story. The story is this is my body. Or when sensation arises, this is my sensation. And at some point, this body will dissolute and that will be my dissolution, you know. <laughs> That's why I guess this idea of downloading the mind into the computer is quite uh, appealing to certain intellectuals, people who are very identified with the mind, because they feel like, oh, then I can outlive the body. That's why the obsession with legacies, uh, the obsession with what can I leave when my body is no longer here. And so they build big statues, you know, and even the Ozymandias wreck statue will fall one day. So we're often confronted with this poignancy, this poignancy of the end of the body and the mind. So a lot of spiritual practice says, unless you can deal with that cataract, you know, deal with that root cause, which is your identification with self, you will always see the world in terms of fear and desire, you know. You will always see the world in terms of craving and it will always be kind of restless, be a very restless experience. So that's why we can say the spiritual quest is a little bit like Lord of the Rings. You've got a mala or a cataract, not a mala, by the way, not a garland, a mala, a cataract, an impurity, and you're working to get rid of it so you can see the reality that is always here now, the perfection that you already are, the immortal self, that is your true nature. So you can think of it that way. But in the final analysis, the ring was a real thing. You know, in Lord of the Rings, that ring, that whispering thing that if you threw it into the fire, writing would appear on it. It was an actual thing. And they had to actually go to the fire and get rid of it. Whereas this ego, this separate self is not in actuality a thing. So can you destroy something that doesn't exist? Claire has it right there. The one ring to rule them all. Lord Sauron herself has made an appearance. <laughs> Throw it in the fire, Frodo. Sorry, I just, I love quoting Sam. It's so sweet, you know. I can't carry it for you, Mr. Frodo, but I can carry you. Ah, <laughs> oh, what a great set of... Uh, Potato, sorry, we're going on a tangent. But the point that we're trying to make here is that in Lord of the Rings, you were getting rid of a real thing. Here, you're getting rid of a seemingly real thing that in the end turns out never to have been real at all. Remember the donkey story we told? The rope? Yes. Uh, I'll repeat it just uh, for some of you who are new to the story. Uh, but there's this beautiful Vedanta story, the story about... What the process of Vedanta or um, philosophy really is. And the story is this. There is a dobi. Dobi means kind of a washerman. You know, not very common here in the West. But if you're from like any Desi country or from India, you'll, you'll yeah, Nithya knows. They come to your house and they put all your dirty clothes in a big cloth. And they take the clothes away, wash it, and return it to you at the end of the day or the week. Usually with a few clothes missing. It's part of your tax. 
<laughs> anyway, so in ancient India, it's a very uh, important profession. And so the dobi would have a donkey and have a bag of clothes. He would go around the village, collect all the clothes, and him and the donkey would go to the Ganga, the river, and wash the clothes. So one day, our dobi, he's walking to the river with his donkey and his bag of clothes, but he realizes with horror that he forgot the rope, the rope to tie the donkey to the tree. Without the rope, the donkey might run away. And this would be a real tragedy, you know, for the dobi man. Because if the donkey runs away, he's ruined. He can't afford another donkey. Yet, if he doesn't tie the donkey to the tree, he won't be able to go out into the river and wash his clothes. If he doesn't wash his clothes, his family doesn't get to eat that day. So if he doesn't do his job, he's also ruined. You know, and, and so he's kind of in a ro- between a rock and a hard place here. Can't tie the donkey, but also can't do without washing the clothes. So what to do? He's standing there freaking out about his predicament um, and a stranger walks by. And so the stranger says, oh, why do you look so distressed? And he says, here's my predicament. I need to tie the donkey to the tree, but I don't have the rope. And if I stay with the donkey, I can't wash the clothes. What do I do? The stranger says, oh, don't worry, don't worry. I have just the solution for you. Here's what you do. You go to the tree and pretend like you are tying the donkey. Make a big show of it. You know, make sure the donkey sees you going through the motions of tying it to the tree. And then you can go and wash the clothes. The donkey won't run. And the doby man was rather dubious about this, you know, but he said, fine, fine, I'll give it a try. So he goes to the tree. He does exactly what the stranger told him to do. He pretends to tie the donkey. And then gingerly, he backs away from the donkey. It doesn't run. He's thinking, okay. There might be something to this. So he slowly makes his way to the river. All the time he's looking over his shoulder back at the donkey. It's staying put. It's just standing there grazing, not doing anything. And so eventually he goes into the water and he starts to wash his clothes. And every now and then he looks back and lo and behold, the trick worked. The donkey is staying by the tree. The donkey actually thinks it's tied. You know. Anyway, it seems like a victory for the Dobi man. At the end of the day, the sun is setting. He goes back to the donkey um, and he gets on the donkey now with his clothes. He's very satisfied. It's time to deliver the clothes back uh, to the people who you know uh, own them. And he says, hut, hut. But the donkey doesn't move. Oh, something weird is going on now. Hut, hut. It won't move. And now he starts to panic. No matter what he does, he can't get the donkey to move. He slaps it on the rump. You know, he shows the carrot. He's making sounds. He's shouting at the donkey. He's barking like a wolf. Nothing's going on. The donkey won't move. So he runs back to the village on foot. It's starting to get pretty dark now. You can imagine his anxiety is quite high. He runs to the tavern looking for that man. Where could... And he finds him. By chance, he finds the man. You know, the man who originally told him to do this. So he said... Oh no, what's happened? The donkey won't move. Your trick was good, it worked, but now it won't stop working. And the man said, relax, Baya, relax. Here's what you do. You go back to the donkey and you pretend to undo the rope. Make sure the donkey sees it and then you'll be fine. (laughs) So he does that and then the donkey walks. Do you see? There was no rope. There was never a rope. But you still have to go through the motions of removing the illusory rope so the donkey of your mind and body will align itself with the reality of what you are. You know. So make no mistake, when I talk to you about austerity today, when I tell you that the um, 
removal of lust and greed are all non-negotiables in the spiritual life, that isn't to say if X, then Y. Not really. Because you are always quote unquote Y. There is no conditional about it. You are always the essence, the reality, what we call Brahman, Shiva. That's your true nature. It's what you always have been, what you always will be, what you are now, if only you are able to see it. That means all it takes, mark this well, all it takes is one insight, one moment of insight. And for that moment of insight, all of these things. So to give you that moment of insight, what have we done? We've given you a few arguments. Drigdrusha Viveka, Pancha Kosha Viveka. There are a bunch of different arguments to help you see this point. But let's say it hasn't happened. Some of you have been here for some time. You've heard Drigdrusha Viveka a lot. <laughs> You've heard, heard Pancha Kosha Viveka a lot. Many of you are familiar with Swami Sarva Priyananda's work, Vivekananda's work. Um, some of you uh, are non-dualist of other traditions like the Gnostic tradition. You know, all of that. You're many non-dualists here. And a lot of you know about this concept. You know, a lot of you on an intellectual level understand this, but somehow the understanding that you are Brahman, the understanding that you are none other than pure awareness has not created a shift in you. It hasn't yet changed your experience. In other words, it hasn't yet removed all your fear, all your craving, all your restlessness. So what to do now? <laughs> okay, for this we say, um, it's not an insight on an intellectual level. It's an insight on a very deep level. So to grasp this idea, this very subtle idea that you are just the awareness, you are not the mind, nor are you the body. You are just the awareness behind every sensation that arises. Now, if you're able to see your mind and body as a mass of sensations, you're able to identify less and less with the sensation and more and more with the field of vibration in which that, sorry, the field of awareness in which that sensation is vibrating. You know, and then you will realize something very interesting. So when you have this insight, here's what life will look like. You know, just a, a glimpse into it. When you are firmly established, meaning when this insight has actually happened for you, this is the way to test it. You will feel a tremendous sense of ease and relaxation. It will be your living reality that you are always in your parasympathetic nervous system with moments of sympathetic nervous system activity, you know, to borrow the physiology of it. But you will find yourself being very relaxed. Your muscles will generally be very relaxed. Um, there is a great sense of fearlessness because now you no longer fear the end of the mind and the body. You know them to be just sensations. So fearlessness is one of the key defining traits of this insight. Another one is a deep sense of um, unity, a deep sense of love and compassion for all beings, because you recognize that the same awareness that you are is, is everywhere always the same. So when you meet someone, it is a vibration within that same awareness. You know, it's no longer Nish meeting Jhana. It's a mind and a body meeting another mind and a body inside a field of awareness, which is my true identity. That can create my love for Jhana in a way that Nish would never be capable of. So any love that Nish experiences is personal, is conditional, and to a large extent is dependent on certain gratification. You know, maybe it's sense gratification. Maybe it's egoic gratification. Like I need someone to make 
me feel like I'm special or etc. That love is never quite complete and is never quite satisfying. Again, the Jewish story, the rabbi walks downstairs and sees his brother rabbi eating fish. You've heard this one. I love this. And he says, oh, brother, why are you eating the fish? And he, the, the, the fish eater says, because I love fish. And the guy says, well, if you loved fish, why did you take it out of the water, kill it and fry it? No, my friend, you don't love fish. You love yourself. You love what the fish is doing for you, the eating of the fish. So this is how most of us experience quote unquote love. <laughs> it's a tremendously conditional thing. It's a very personal thing. And when that person stops fulfilling a function or giving you what you know you're, you're getting, and then it becomes a little complicated. Then there's this great negotiation and compromise to get them to do that. <laughs> um, and of course, we can talk about what these relationships will look like post a non-dual state. So once you have a non-dual experience, you start to realize that it's not that you love in this sense. You love in an inclusivity sense. So everything is included. There is nothing apart from this awareness. This awareness is all there is. So everything is included. In other words, everything is accepted. You know, if you really break down what love is in its purest form, it's an unconditional acceptance of another person. You know, it's a respect and an attention. And when you break down what respect is, it's just a reverential feeling of attention to someone. You care about what they have to say. You look closely at their facial expressions. I mean, that's what love is. Imagine having that feeling for every vibratory experience. And now let's talk Nitya about vibration because Nitya asks, I hear vibration a lot, um, but what does it mean? And Nitya is very right to point out that we have a lot of scientific jargon about vibration. So we know now matter to be nothing other than energy. Um, Einstein's unified field theory, which he never completed, ended with the statement that matter is nothing more than dense parts of the field you know, a certain contracted vibration. You will find this in Semaraja. So I know Kaden always likes uh, book references. So Semaraja, Semaraja. I always pronounce it with the S because I'm Tamil speaking. But Semaraja is a beautiful, beautiful um, philosopher from Kashmir. He was the student of the great Abhinava Gupta and he wrote a text known as the Spanda Karika, which you, there's a good translation called the Doctrine of Vibration. And so in this tradition, we hold all existence to be a vibratory event. So all I mean, Nithya, is that notice how emotions or sensations feel in your body. You know, notice that every time like, you know, some pain comes, it's vibrating. It's a, a very dynamic, alive kind of experience. It's a pulsation if you will. Anybody who's experienced grief knows what I'm talking about. It comes and goes with intensity. It's a pulsating experience. You know, you've stubbed your toe, yes, it's pulsating. The pain comes and goes. So your experience of everything is an experience of a certain vibratory form. So when you see someone, what you're experiencing is a vibration or a movement in awareness. So when I look at Claire, there's a very delightful movement in my awareness. You know, there's a very high frequency vibration. I'm excited. I, I delight at the, the sun that is Claire, you know, the radiance of her face. But all of it I'm experiencing within my awareness, no? I mean, it's not like Claire exists out there. Claire, to me, is a certain kind of activity on the retina. It's a certain electrical signal in the brain, um, to use the materialist term. 
And then on deeper levels, it's a resonance. It's a feeling of Claire's energy, if you will. I don't like to use some of these new age terms like energy, but I certainly don't mean vibration exclusively in the way that we use it today, vibes, you know. But it comes from this. So everything that you experience is a movement in consciousness, a certain vibratory form. When you are established in a non-dual awareness, every experience in life becomes this loving experience and acceptance experience. So suffering, as we talked about last week, is just the feeling of not accepting something that comes up. You know, someone says something and you're like, no, I protest. You feel a feeling like, no, I shouldn't be feeling this. Suffering is just protesting. It's just resisting. It's rejecting what is. So if you're in this non-dual state, you know that everything that exists is just a vibratory experience. It arises and dissolutes, like our opening meditation today with the wave. Uh, you'll notice that you're no longer freaking out about the waves coming and going. You're more the ocean, the awareness. Okay, this is the most important part. If you take nothing away from today's talk, just take this. This is the most important Having a non-dual experience is not the point. Every one of you have had non-dual experiences. Some of you have had them through psychedelics. Some of you have had them at the end of an asana practice while you were in shavasana or corpse pose. Some of you had them making love in the moment of orgasm. Some of you had them walking along the beach. Some of you will have them after you put a piece of chocolate in your mouth and you watch it, you know, dissolve into that wonderful sensual flavor. Okay, all of you have had this experience. The problem is you weren't able to live in it. It came and it went. <laughs> Three seconds later, you were back in this um, fearful, anxiety-ridden, I am the mind, I am the body state. So having a non-dual experience is not the point. And Westifer and I were talking about that um, on one Thursday, where you can have this experience, you know, playing music with a band. Um, but that's really no big deal, you know? It's not that impressive. It's not impressive to have a non-dual experience. Some of you have had it um, during Panchakosha Viveka, Drig Drisha Viveka. You're like, oh, I see it. And for a moment, you could taste that profound freedom um, of knowing yourself not to be just the body and the mind. But it faded. You know, um, you're back in the experience that you were in before that quote-unquote awakening. <laughs> Now, this is a predicament of ego death during psychedelics, you know, as Ram Dass, Terence McKenna, Aldous Huxley, all those people already pointed it out um, in the 60s. You know, they were very, very clear in no uncertain terms did they show us that the psychedelic experience is ultimately unsatisfactory because Jesus will kick you out of the wedding feast. Who is that who has not on a wedding raiment, bind them hand and foot and cast them into the outer darkness? You will be thrown out. You know, um, because you entered in not by the narrow gate, you know, you entered in some weird back entrance. <laughs> um, so now the work is not in having these experiences. This is the most important thing I can convey to you. The work is in integrating, establishing, manifesting this awareness into every movement of light, life. So we'll borrow Vivekananda's beautiful quote. Every soul is potentially divine. I mean, that is your true nature. The work of spirituality is to manifest, that's his word, I love it, to manifest this divinity into every movement of life. How interesting, huh? To manifest it into every movement of life. 
So integration is the work. Even the Buddha said, uh, enlightenment or nirvana, as was his phrase, is the beginning. It's the start of the journey. It's not actually the work. The work is building this understanding into every fiber of your being and into your body, into your mind. You know, Ramakrishna, to demonstrate his non-dual awakening, cleaned the latrine of an untouchable, you know, caste-ridden society in India. People wouldn't even look at certain people. Uh, Ramakrishna, who is a Brahmin at the very top of the social strata, took his long matted hair and used his hair to scrub the latrine or the toilet of an untouchable. That's how he was demonstrating his uh, awareness on a bodily level. He used to throw coins and clay into the river, saying both of them are not different from one another. You know, So this awareness must manifest in each of your interactions. It must become a lived reality. That's the work we're doing. So um, say you've had this non-dual experience. Well, let's say you haven't. Let's say you haven't had the non-dual experience. What's the problem? We say, okay, Vikshepa. It takes a little bit of, uh, what do you call it? Quietude in the mind to be able to grasp the subtlety of what I'm saying or what these arguments are making. The arguments that these uh, books are saying, like it's not able to be grasped unless you have a certain level of cultivation of the mind. You know, you must be able to feel into the vibration of these words. And if you're not able to, if you're not able to kind of intuit this thing that I'm only alluding to, then we call that a vikshepa. What's the solution? Bhakti and meditation. Devotion and meditation. So the problem is that the mind isn't quiet enough to appreciate this pure awareness state. So you have to meditate. And of course, there's a million and one ways to do that. Or you can do it by worship, you know, worship of uh, whatever, in a lot of dualistic religions like Christian worship, uh, uh, Hare Krishna, whatever, you, whatever, what have you, you perform worship, puja, bhakti, and that devotion coupled with the meditation will purify, so to speak, the mind so that it can receive this non-dual truth. What if you've been doing devotion and meditation? A lot of you have been doing that a long time. You've been meditating a while, but it's still not working. Still not quite happening. You know, the integration is still not quite clicking. Now what? So we call this, um, uh, we need some chitta shuddhi. Shuddhi means purification. Chitta means of the mind or consciousness. Consciousness is an interesting word, but let's say consciousness lower C, you know, not awareness, not the thing that we call the non-dual Brahman, but more of the mental, what maybe Kant would call prudential reasoning, practical reasoning. So we need some more purification there. So if bhakti or meditation isn't working, you know what the solution is, actually? It's a very interesting. In the non-dual tradition, in Advaita Vedanta, the solution is karma yoga, selfless service, you know, work. But if you do work, if you do worship and if you do meditation without this understanding, without this frame of non-dual awareness, none of those will bear fruit. That's kind of the Advaita Vedanta perspective. You must first be equipped with the right view. Even the Buddha had this in his eightfold path, the right view. You must know the theory behind the practice and then only the practice will help you. Why? Because the practice itself is only a supporting role. It doesn't get you anywhere because there's nowhere to go. It doesn't take anything away from you because there's nothing to remove. It doesn't give you anything because there's nothing to get. 
All there is, is pure awareness. It is always everywhere the same. It is the smallest leaf to the most rarefied concept of God. There is nowhere you can go that is outside of awareness. Similarly, um, there is no way for awareness to go into awareness. That would suppose two things. But if there's only one thing, then no amount of practice will get you that thing. You are already that. So the practice is only there to help you realize what we're saying. Realize this one fact. And once you realize the fact, it's instantaneous. So how much practice you need can never be ascertained. Some people practice a little and they're immediately enlightened. Some people practice not at all and they're immediately enlightened. Some people have to practice for many lives and finally they get it. And some people practice and never get it. <laughs> when I say enlightened, I mean established, you know? Okay, so that's the most important thing. Established, um, fixed. And the reason, Corey, is because the practice doesn't, and we'll hear that contradictory statement in a bit, Sean, when we conclude. Um, the practice doesn't really do that much for you. It's not about meditating. It's not about service. It's not even really about bhakti or worship. Um, it's just that those things can be helpful in cultivating a certain mental receptivity to this idea. So what is all of that? It's faking it for the donkey. It's removing the rope. You know, you were never tied, but you do go through all of these motions, so to speak, to untie yourself. Once you become untied, you should, and this is how you test it, experience tremendous relaxation, fearlessness, and also um, creativity. You know, so you should be incredibly active. All the energy that you used to spend maintaining a false thought construct is now freed up for creative work. So now you are no longer the mind and body. Let the mind and body lecture all day. You know, let it make shoes all day. Who gives a hoot? Um, but it can do that because there's no more energy being spent in other places. You don't need to eat so much because the energy demand is less. You know, and there's so much silence in your mind that you just become um, artistically empowered. So poetry, music, cupcakes, whatever your art is, it should flow forth from you freely. So the mark of a person who is established in a non-dual awareness is that they're always relaxed, um, even in moments of grief or danger or trouble, you'll find them being very calm, you know. Even when they're responding, maybe they're calling the cops, I don't know, to protect them from something. In the moment of them calling the cops, in the moment of them running from the bear, you will notice the forehead is, is relaxed. The muscles around the eyes are relaxed, you know. You'll notice that they have a lot of creative output, you know, they often always engage in some creative work. This you'll find in the Bhagavad Gita. The sign of one who is established is the same in happiness and in sorrow. Um, equanimity. It, the person is pure and active, you know? So make no mistake, a person established in a non-dual state um, will be very active. They'll be a worker in the world. So now let's go a little deeper. Vivekananda once said, any, and I'm paraphrasing, but any spiritual philosophy that isn't able to wipe the tears off the widow's face now, any spiritual philosophy that isn't able to provide a loaf of bread to the hungry now is not worth the paper it's written on. Something like that. So this spiritual philosophy must work for you right now. You know, 
Um, yes, wonderful, Sean. We'll engage with it in a little bit. Um, so I unfortunately am going to go over about 10, 12 minutes. I'm sorry. Um, I do want to respect your time, though. And so if it's eight o'clock and you've got to go, just drop out. You know, I, it will be recorded. Um, but I will go over a little bit because I haven't yet come to austerity. And I do want to say at least something about it <laughs> because that was the plan. <laughs> but yes, so... Um, the philosophy must work now. So you have two approaches to philosophy. You have a faith-based approach, which tells you just believe on faith. There is an afterlife. I just take my word for it. Do some good works and you'll get there, you know? And that's fine. That has its function and has its place. It helps a lot of people sleep at night and that's okay. But in Advaita Vedanta, the challenge is you should ask more of your religious spiritual philosophies. You shouldn't take anything on faith. Now, even when Jesus says, blessed is he who sees without, uh, who believes without seeing, that statement might actually mean the person who's able to go beyond just the gross, seeing into the subtle causes of things. It might not actually have anything to do with taking things on faith, you know, just the thought. Now, the idea here is if you're able to follow these arguments, they will show you in the immediacy of your aware own awareness, a truth, and that truth will set you free. That truth is that you are just this awareness. You are none other than just this awareness. To get to that truth, though, certain levels of practices are required. And one of those practices is austerity or tapasya. So let's unpack what that is. Austerity is what maybe Jesus would phrase it as deny thyself, self-abnegation. Now look at Jesus. The master himself was quite the ascetic. You know, not only did he sleep on the floor um, and wear rough clothes everywhere. Uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, it says, blessed is he who uh, wanders the world homeless because he knows everywhere is his home. So you'll find this parallel between the Bhagavad Gita and the words of Christ regarding austerity. But Christ would often say things like, look at this flower. You know, even King Solomon is not clad in raiment finer than this. So Christ was not like, take my word for it, gang. He wasn't really like about that. He was making arguments to people. He was drawing their attention to things in the world to make certain points about reality. He was getting people to feel. Notice he didn't just show up and say, believe it. I am the son of God. In, he said that, but then he went on to say, but here are a few parables to teach you these truths. And as Paul, the apostle will write in Galatians, ye sons of gods, as, uh, as, as Jesus would say in John, had ye but faith, ye will do this, uh, even greater works shall ye do. Because I'm going back to the father. So I'm leaving it to you folks. You know, you take it from here. You're all sons of gods. <laughs> but what is this had ye but faith? Perhaps we can translate that as if you were able to have this, this thing that Jesus is offering, this kingdom of heaven that is within, um, you will be able to do these works. But in order to have this, you must practice what the Christ practiced, which is hang out in a desert and fast, you know, sleep on the floor, uh, give away your shirt when someone steals your jacket, turn your face when someone slaps you. It's very drastic. Um, and he wasn't uh, so much to say a pacifist all the time. He's flipping tables, you know. He does throw hissy fits. Now, Jesus was one of those people that was reacting appropriately given the situation. When it was time to flip tables, he flipped tables. When it was time to turn the face, he turned the face. But ultimately, he always preached some level of denying oneself of things. 
In Islam, the Sufi tradition was a big fan of this. A Sufi was often called that uh, because they were called a fakir, which means a poor person. You know, you find this a lot with Christian mystic traditions too, like the Dominicans or the Franciscans. Poverty is a value. It's a, it's a virtue, you know, so give up everything that you own. The Buddhist would often shave their head, leave society behind and go live in the mountain. So this is all forms of giving something up. You know, and this comes back to our theme of renunciation, which we started several weeks ago. So you can tell that the theme of the past few classes has been renunciation and uh, moving you towards doing it, but not in this dramatic or, or you know, outward show of the, uh, 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 the word, but a very subtle form. So what is austerity? Now, tapasya is known as, you know, Actually, let me back up a little bit and say, before we use the word yoga, we use the word tapasya to mean all the things that yoga means. So if you think of yoga as a set of practices or a method, um, before that word yoga came into circulation, according to the um, philosopher George Furstein in his book, Deeper Dimensions of Yoga, he explores the etymology and he points that before the Chandogya Upanishad, before the use of the word yoga, the word that was used to mean what yoga now means, the word was tapasya. And I'll type it down here, tapasya. And this word literally means glowing or heating. In other words, it means stepping into the fire for purification. Tapasya then is any activity that you undertake in order to purify the mind and body so that you can be receptive to one spontaneous insight. Do you see? So it's not a tool to give you spirituality. It's a tool to prepare the body and the mind for integrating the spirituality that you already are. This is key. This is a key idea. It's not like you're practicing to get to spirituality. You're practicing so spirituality can get to the world. Do you see that? You're not going anywhere. You're just trying to bring yourself into your body, mind, relationships, life. You know, that's what austerity is for. Now, the South Asian philosophies um, started to develop a very interesting idea here. Stepping into the fire. If you were able to deny the body and the mind, as Jesus said, maybe you will realize ultimately you aren't the body and the mind. Of course, a lot of this was the result of Sankhya. And because in Sankhyan philosophy, you start to see the world in a very dualistic way. There, there is a mind and a body, and it's kind of holding you back. It's obscuring your purusha, your spirit. Dualistic philosophies like uh, uh, kind of exoteric Christianity or Zoroastrianism has a tendency or have a tendency of demonizing the world, Babylon. We talked about this in couple of classes back. If you do that, austerity takes on a very dark connotation. Austerity becomes mortification. Oh, and you do not, uh, you could not overstate the length to which practitioners of South Asian philosophy took mortification. Staring at the sun until their eyes burnt out, 
uh, walking on hot coals, holding their hands up until their hands withered away, standing on one leg for years, burying themselves alive, wearing a heavy thing on their pierced tongue. Uh, oh my God. The level of austerity, meaning the level of self-mortification that South Asian philosophies have produced is quite horrific. And you will see it even today. So where I grew up, there's a temple in the mountains. And every year during Thai Pusam, which is an important festival in South India, in, in this festival, you will see people walking with hooks in their back, dragging a heavy object. And they will be like pouring blood, you know? And I'm like a little kid looking at all of this stuff. Um, and they'll go into ecstatic states. You know, because the intensity of that pain can sometimes force you into a non-dual experience. That's definitely a given. But this kind of, uh, you know, oh, Cal, welcome, Cal from Trinidad. I've missed you. But this kind of self-torture, this self-mortification done in the name of spirituality turned out to be counterproductive to spirituality. And the reason is aversion to the body Aversion to the mind is just attachment in a different form. It's another face of obsession. So at being attached to the body and the mind is, is the problem. But repressing the body and the mind, fighting your demons, so to speak, is another face of that same problem. You can be obsessed with your demons or you can try to fight them. Repression, aversion, resistance is just the other face of the same coin. Um, of attachment. Do you see? The Buddha was the first one to kind of alight upon this insight. So we all know the story of the Buddha and we'll end here with this idea of what the Buddha's de definition of austerity is, what the Bhagavad Gita's definition of austerity is, and only take a couple of minutes, and I will give you a few practices of austerity that you can immediately apply. Um, what things might count as austerity. So the Buddha um, saw as a young prince, he saw as an old man, a sick man, and a dead man. When confronted with the reality of life, meaning when confronted with the problem of suffering, he set out to solve the problem of suffering. His first approach was to practice what the mystics of his culture were practicing, which at his time was this mortification of the flesh, this self-abnegating, self-hating torture. Okay, this is not so strange. A lot of you are doing this to yourself as we speak. A lot of you are not waking up at 4 a.m. and cursing yourself for not doing it. A lot of you are missing days of med meditation and then whipping yourself for having done that. You know, um, a lot of you have ideals that when you fall short of those ideals, you punish yourself. Um, it's exactly what they were doing. It's just that Indians can take things to extremes sometimes. <laughs> so the externalization of the same tendency, the Buddha first thought was the way. You know, so he started to do this. He started to not eat, not sleep, stand on one leg. Whatever austerities the people around him were practicing, he also took upon himself to practice. So eventually he made five friends. You know, the story is he had, he had a, a gang of uh, ascetics. And the five of them, six of them, would just hang out in forest all days, uh, all day eating nothing, torturing themselves. It's like a weird BDSM thing, I don't know. But it was like his dungeon, his uh, <laughs> Bodh Gaya Dungeon West. You know, they have LA Dungeon West, the BDSM studio. Yeah, this is Bodh Gaya Dungeon West. Okay, no disrespect. But there he is with his ascetics. And he's doing this. He's starving himself to death. Here's the beautiful thing. 
One day, the Buddha is sitting under a tree with his ascetics, starving. And he's sitting in front of the Ganga, you know, the Ganges, and a boat is sailing by. On the boat, there is a musician and his teacher. The teacher is teaching the musician how to string uh, a sitar. I think it was a sitar, an ektara, I think, a, a stringed instrument. And the teacher says, um, if the string is too loose, it won't play. But if it's wound too tight, it will snap. The Buddha heard this and he had a realization. Self-mortification was just as bad as self-indulgence. Extreme penance was just another version of extreme attachment. And this was the realization that caused him to find the middle way. So the story is he took a shower. He was served rice by a farmer, a farming girl who was nearby. He ate the rice and he realized that the middle way, the balance between two extremes was the way. Now, that's what austerity is. The true meaning of austerity is finding the middle way. The Bhagavad Gita says, a yogi is not one who sleeps too much, nor is it one who sleeps too little. The yogi is not one who eats too much, nor is it the one who eats too little. You know, so even in the Bhagavad Gita, you're getting this idea of a middle way. You'll find it in Marcus Aurelius's writings, the Stoic philosophers of Rome and also of Greece, like Sextus, Empiricus, and Diogenes. Diogenes was a cynic, not quite a Stoic, but you'll find it in Diogenes, Sextus, Empiricus, Marcus Aurelius. This idea that what it means to be spiritually evolved is to be... Uh, Equanimous. I can never say the word. Equanimity? Equanimous? I don't know. But the idea that you are beyond Dvanda or the play of opposites. This is a serious austerity. So I will redefine austerity for you today in our final minutes as any practice that refuses the reactions of the mind and body. So tapasya is deciding to be the cause, not the effect. So when someone blames you, uh, the mind and body want to act a certain way. Tapasya is the action of not doing that. It's not giving in to your patterns. And so it's a very subtle practice because it will feel in the beginning very difficult. I mean, you want to go along with the momentum of your mind and body. Your patterns are not really neutrality either. It's very interesting uh, because, yes, you can translate equanimity as neutrality, but it's not inaction. It's not refusing to engage in the world. You know, as the Bhagavad Gita says, chapter 2, verse 47, your right is not to the fruits of your action. Your, rights, your right is only to the action. Don't be lazy. That's the, essentially what that line translates to. Inaction and desiring the fruit of your action is uh, both two sides of the same coin. Activity without desire for outcome is the ultimate austerity. Selfless activity is the ultimate austerity. So think of it this way. If you want to perform an austerity, the next time you get a paycheck, give it all to, the, to, the, to some charity you like. That's an austerity. An act of selfless service, you know? Um, the next time you feel like saying a hurtful word to someone on the street or a partner, don't. The next time you feel angry and want to express it, don't, you know? The next time you feel angry and don't want to express it because your pattern is to hold things in, express it, 
Do you see? There is no generalization of what an austerity looks like. It's very hard to give an example. Um, Austerity is any action, yes, any practice that refuses the patterns of mind and body. So let's think of austerity as the reprogramming or reconditioning of the mind and body to align itself with a higher truth. The mind and body have the patterns that they have now because they are firmly convinced that that's all there is. They think that only the body and the mind exist, so they react in ways that affirm that narrative. Once you start to learn these philosophies, you have a new narrative. Yet, that narrative is not able to integrate as a lived experience because the mind and body are to an extent holding on to the old narratives, the old program, and acting along those lines. So when you start to internalize spiritual philosophy, the practice actually starts with um, non, uh, uh, what do you call it? What's the opposite of internalize? Expelling? I don't know. But the idea of you're trying to resist or weaken the force of your patterns. And you do that by just refusing to go along with them. Now, I cannot really give you examples except anecdotally. So if you're someone who doesn't speak your truth, your austerity is speaking up for yourself. If you're someone who's very reactive and shouting at people all the time, your austerity is not doing that. If your tendency is to eat too much, your austerity is to eat less. If your tendency is to deny yourself and not eat enough, your austerity is to eat enough. Do you see? Um, so your austerity is highly individual. And if you are on the spiritual path, life becomes a very beautiful austerity. It's only austerity um, in the beginning. There's only moments where it will feel kind of uncomfortable, kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's a shift that's not yet. It's maybe you could call it a learning curve, growing pains, if you will. That's only in the beginning. But After a little while, yeah, like a nagging intuition, if you will, something in you knows what you ought to do. Um, But and if you're living in moderation, maybe that your austerity is not to, you know, so all of you have patterns. Now, it's hard to say what you should or shouldn't do. What we can say is this. Eventually, your spirituality becomes mature when the things you know you should do start to become the things you want to do. You know? So that's when uh, the good becomes the desirable. In the beginning, the good is not the desirable. The good, I'm using this in the Aristotelian sense of the ideal, the spiritual um, uh, virtue. That's something you know you should do, but you don't want to do it. So in the beginning, there is some struggle to wake up and meditate, to decide that meditating tonight is more important than getting an extra hour of sleep, maybe. I don't know. Or to decide that meditating is more important than working on that Excel spreadsheet. I don't know. The desire to make spiritual life your priority, that's the ultimate austerity. But eventually, it won't be an austerity. So I like how Ram Das says, the austerities that are in fact not austerities. Do you know why? Eventually, the taste of water will be like nectar to you. When you purify and refine your consciousness enough, simple things like the taste of water will be orgasmic, so delicious, you know? Um, Simple pleasures become the only fulfilling experience. And so it's not so much that you're giving things up, things are giving you up. 
interestingly enough, we're returning to our theme that we took up many, many classes ago, which is renunciation is not giving things up. It's just internalizing a certain understanding that allows those things to fall away from you effortlessly. You cannot force yourself out of the cocoon. You will become a butterfly in your own time. You know, the snake sheds its skin at the rate at which the snake sheds its skin, to borrow again from Ram Dass. That being said, there will be some growing pains and tapasya is the character of welcoming that. You know, so it isn't any set of practices and it could be a set of practices, but I'll give you four general ones for you to take away from today's lecture. Four general tapasyas. The first is always tell the truth or maintain silence. Never err from this. This is the most important. Never speak a falsehood. And in the beginning, your work is just to notice every time that you do. The danger is if you do, don't beat yourself up about it. You know, notice it with compassion and humor. Notice that a million times a day, something in you creates an urge to discount truth. Something in you wants to, I don't know, exaggerate, uh, depict something the way it's not quite, omit details. I don't know. There's something in you that is averse to truth as it is. So the first tapasya is perhaps just to notice when that urge to lie comes up or that urge to discount truth and then decide not to. And that might mean silence. You know, speaking your truth doesn't mean just saying everything to anybody. The general rule is if it's false, but pleasing, don't say it. If it's true, but not pleasing, don't say it. <laughs> So only say what is pleasing, um, but don't ever say what's not true, you know, and don't ever say what's pleasing and not true. So that's kind of the idea. S speak the truth. That's the most important thing. The second one that I will give you today is love everyone, you know, which doesn't mean respect everybody. It means love everybody. It means be as inclusive of others as possible uh, as if, even when they're being annoying, you know, they're just like an annoying sister or brother or something. Like you just kind of, Claire does this very well. But just this idea of just uh, loving, it's really hard to do. And you always have to check back in with yourself. It's like, oh, is that is that loving? Is that, you know, so that's the second one. The third one is spend some time every day cultivating your spiritual life. For most of us, this is the hardest austerity. It's easy to read. It's easy to attend lectures. Well, for some of us, not really, <laughs> but um, it's really hard to start putting into practice the things that you get from books and lectures. That requires daily asana, daily pranayam, daily meditation, daily altar worship, whatever practice you have. It's imperative that you don't even drop a single day. And if you do, it's okay, you know, but just try your best to get that. The fourth one and the final austerity, um, and this might be the most interesting one. But the final austerity um, is a little bit like love everyone, except this austerity is the most profound teaching you could get from Tantra, which is say yes, not necessarily, you know, um, submit, be defeated by, but say yes to every vibratory experience that arises in your awareness. Say yes to every grief. Say yes to every sadness every moment of pain, every moment of joy, whatever comes up for you, have the courage to look at it without 
running away in the form of a story. No need to justify it to yourself. No need to reason about it, analyze it. Just feel it. Meaning, just say quietly to yourself, it's okay that this emotion is arising right now. The ultimate penance, and this is what I will leave you with, the ultimate austerity is letting go of all your protest to what is. You know, if there's pain in the body the way you're sitting right now, um, if there's a financial difficulty in your life, if there's a social problem, some kind of drama happening, you know, if there's something going on politically that you're not happy about, um, if there's something going on, um, maybe it's the pandemic. I don't know. Whatever that's happening, um, your ultimate penance is to allow it to be just as it is um, and allow it to finish in its own time. So when a grief arises, don't be so quick to have the experience finish. Sit with it, watch it, feel it, and let it be just as it is now, going away in its own time, coming back in its own time. That's the ultimate tapasya. But let us close with this idea. Tapasya is an indispensable part of spiritual life. Because if your spiritual practice is working, it can be rough. It's rough because the mind and body are usually not okay. They're usually not on board with the process of their own dissolution. <laughs> they will protest to you deciding that you are more than the mind and body. When you start to realize that you are not the cherished idea you've had of yourself for all these years, there might be great struggle. You know, the towers of Babylon will come down. It's the blasted tower, you know. And scarily enough, the relationships in your life that were not based on truth will fade away. They will leave you. The jobs that you have that are not based on truth will fade away from you. So you might lose jobs. You might lose friends. You might become ill. All these things will happen because spirituality will displace things. And not always is that going to happen with ease and grace. I wish it for all of you that it happens as easily as possible. But the reality is some tapasya is going to happen. So can this tapasya be just the acceptance of it happening when it's happening? And we'll close there. Okay. So um, let's close with the Gayatri Mantra, um, which is, may the awareness, the one awareness that is, the sun, Savitri, the light of life, the light of awareness, ever illumine my every thought. So in other words, may I integrate into my very thought patterns this awareness that I am, full stop. Svaha Tatsavitor Varenyam Bargo Devasya Dimahi Dio Yona Pracho Dayad Shanti 
Shanti Shanti